One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, that was April then. How was it for you? Cooped up in a small flat on your own, jogging your way through the streets of your hometown, working all the hours that God sent in the front line of a hospital, driving a lorry around Britain delivering essential supplies, or dealing with hundreds of idiotic panic-buying shoppers who won't safe distance themselves from you in a supermarket. This month has been different for everyone. For some, it is lockdown-tastic as they enjoyed their pets, their children and their garden. For Boris Johnson, it was a matter of life or death. Others saw their savings dwindle to nothing as they waited for some kind of compensation to come from the government. And for those of us still able to work, it was a strange experience of light and shade, of madness and calm, of social extremes. One thing is for sure, there is no one in this country who thinks the month of May should be anything like April. Only yesterday, I drove past a KFC outlet, open for the first time to a gaggle of moped delivery riders. I heard from friends who told me their hairdressers in London were taking appointments once more, and even the Prime Minister promised a plan would be revealed next week for the opening up of the economy. And yet, we've got an exclusive poll at Talk Radio here today revealing that 84% of people surveyed say they would feel unsafe visiting a restaurant or a pub if the lockdown is relaxed next week. I, for one, am expecting something to move. I don't know about you, but I think it's time. 0344 499 1000. Coming up today, we'll take the political temperature of last night's press briefing with Boris Johnson. The hack seems slightly more respectful than usual, and he's clearly still suffering from the after effects of his brush with COVID-19. We'll ask John Rental what he made of it all. Uh, he's, of course, the Independence Chief Political Commentator. As ever, we want your news, your views, and your opinions as well. What are you going to be doing this weekend? Do let us know. 0344 499 1000. I was happy to see the police seem to be good to their word last night. They stayed away from Westminster Bridge and the party atmosphere was much diluted. Another victory for the Independent Republic. On the home schooling today, we're going to be studying the great gold rush of 1848. Consumer journalist Georgie Frost will be helping us out with questions about furlough payments. And because it's Friday, it's time for the Perrier Awards, of course, in the company of Marta Malagon. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, at the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time has flown to such an extent, and I can't remember the last time I spoke to John Renton, and we used to speak to each other on a very regular basis, so I'm hoping uh, that he's still the fine 
uh, stylish and debonair character that he always was. John, a very good uh, morning to you. <laughs> what an introduction. Well, Mike. listen, I, I mean... Think what it was only about a week ago that we lost. Was it? Yeah. I mean, I've totally lost all track of time. I mean, yeah, quite frankly, right. when I found out yesterday that we'd been in lockdown for the whole of April, it was like this sudden kind of revelation because I was obviously <laughs> just trying to avoid thinking about it. But I think I'm right in saying that most people, uh, if not all people in this country, would not like to see May turning into another April where we just sit around and can't do anything. No, absolutely. You know, you're quite right. I mean, I only ever know what uh, day of the week it is when people start banging saucepans outside. <laughs> that's, uh, that's Thursday, I yes. know that. Yes, um, But no, you're absolutely right. I think, uh, I mean, looking back, I and mean, people mocked uh, Professor Chris Whitty for mm. saying that we mustn't introduce lockdown too early because people will get bored with it and they won't, won't be able to maintain it. Right. Um, but, I mean, we now, right. we now realise what he was talking about. But, you know, it is going to get difficult to... To, to, to maintain it. And actually, I, th I suspect that it may be partly, I mean, I don't know if this is deliberate government policy, but I mean, I think, I think the fact that people are uh, sort of relaxing their vigilance mm. somewhat, it may, be, it may be a way of easing the lockdown. It's, yes. You know, I mean, I've always believed... Will relax. Yeah, I've always believed that this government has deliberately been vague on a number of things in order for the reaction to kind of lead the charge, if you like, in order to let the, pe the people kind of dictate what happens. Well, that's right. I mean, when uh, when when Boris Johnson announced the, the the lockdown and said that the police would enforce it, I yeah. mean, that was a, that was a reaction to public opinion, which was demanding mm. uh, a, a stricter lockdown. Actually, it possibly wasn't even necessary, uh, but you know, we won't know that for for for, for a while. But I mean, certainly the the cur the, the 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 spread of the uh, the epidemic seemed to have turned. Uh, before the uh, before the actual lockdown, yeah. the, the the hard lockdown was announced. So it yes. may just have been that the sort of voluntary measures were were enough. In which case, you know, we can take a fairly relaxed view and 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 maybe ease some things. But you're absolutely right. Things have got to be eased mm. this month, otherwise otherwise it will drive a. I mean, I think a minority of the population crazy. I mean, I think I think the majority are actually still quite fearful and uh, want to see the strictest measures maintained. Well, absolutely. It's interesting, uh, this survey, we've got, we've got the results on today, which says 84% of people surveyed said they would feel unsafe visiting a restaurant or a pub if the lockdown is relaxed next week. And I think it's also interesting, because we're in London, you get a very different view of what's going on, because London is much busier than most of the rest of Britain, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the last week and a half or so, it's got really busy. Mm, has it? Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've been I've been out, you know, for my daily exercise cycling around London, and right. still, the streets are still pretty empty. I suppose that's true, um, but I, I, I guess I'm talking about I, I'm still coming into work into the studio because we live stream the show and it's the only place we can do it from. I drive in. I don't come on public transport anymore. And no. I basically come in from sort of Canary Wharf into London Bridge, and there's now a very steady stream of traffic. Um, which is coming into the city, right. um, uh, which wasn't the case about a month ago. Like a month ago, there was hardly any cars at all. Now, yeah. there's traffic jams. Yes, that's interesting. I mean, because, as you say, that, that survey that you just quoted suggested that, that very few people would be uh, comfortable using public transport. Yeah. But, I mean, driving, uh, you know, people... people in their cars seem to me fairly low risk. I mean, yes. you know, it depends what you do when but you But what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm assuming, though, is that these are not people who are driving for pleasure. These are people who are driving to work. Exactly. Because, you know, clearly more people have gone back to work. And certainly I know of people who have called my show 
who run businesses, small businesses, and they've said, look, we couldn't get a loan out of the bank. We had to go back to work because yeah. basically we're, we're, we're employing a fewer people actually in the office. We're distancing ourselves, but we've had to restart the business. And one guy said to me from, uh, from the Midlands, we voluntarily shut it. Now we're voluntarily reopening it. Yeah, and I, th I do think that, I think a lot of that is, is going to happen. And, and, and I, hope, I hope it will because, I mean, the economic damage of a really hard lockdown uh, is, is absolutely uh, catastrophic. I mean, I just don't think people have, have really realised quite how bad the, the economy is going to be as a result of all this. I mean, you can't, I mean, everyone's sort of assuming that because it was sort of done artificially, you could just sort of artificially turn the economy off yeah. and then turn it back on again. Right. But it, just, it doesn't work like that. I mean, the damage done in the meantime is, is going to be absolutely immense and it's going to take a very long time to get back to to anything like yes. uh, the situation we were well, in. Well, I mean, the hospitality business alone uh, is, is worth looking at. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have a conversation every Monday now with Peter Hitchens, who's very much against the lockdown economically, saying that it's going to do far more damage than the actual virus, and we should have done what Sweden did. But even in Sweden, there's many hotels there that have just gone bankrupt because there's nobody yeah. staying in them. Absolutely. Actually, you've just reminded me, Mike, one of the... One of the joys of my normal pre-coronavirus existence was, was bumping into Peter Hitchens at, uh, at independent headquarters in Kensington. Oh, yes. He, he, he works in the same building. Uh, and I often bump into him in the, in the canteen right. or uh, in, the, in the Marks and Spencers, although he doesn't use the self-service checkouts because he doesn't believe in them. He doesn't <laughs> destroy jobs. Well, of course. But, you know, he is, he's, a, he's, a, he's a lovely bloke. Um, I mean, I don't agree with him on, all, on, on, on almost on anything. Things, right. But he is very entertaining and very articulate. And yes. actually, he is, he is setting out quite an articulate case at the moment, I think. For, oh, he is. For why the, why the lockdown has gone too far and... Uh, but, of course, it's easy to say that. And, I mean, to be fair to him, he has been very consistent, and we'll have him on again on Monday to see what his latest uh, view is. But, basically, at the time when the lockdown began, let's not forget that we were, we were, were seeing a very, very high increase of cases yeah. and a very high increase of deaths. And so we were in a very different place then. Well, absolutely, and that was the point that the Prime Minister made yesterday, and I thought he, he, he made it very well. Um, well, I mean, you know, people were accusing him of... Uh, of of, of exaggerating, saying that the worst case scenario, we managed to avoid the worst case scenario, which was 500,000 deaths. I mean, you know, we don't know about that yet, but I mean, right. obviously it's not, it, it doesn't look as if it's going to be that bad. But I mean, I mean, he is entitled to point out that, you know, we, we were worried about the NHS being overwhelmed and it wasn't. I mean, but it did come quite close in some places. Yes. Certainly some London hospitals were under, under severe stress. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily um, the wrong thing to do at the time. I mean, uh, you know, Peter Hitchens can, can can have an opinion, and so and so can I. But I mean, nobody actually knows what the uh, what would have happened. No, if we and my view of that is is that the government was therefore successful in its in its plan to make sure that the NHS was not overwhelmed because yeah. it wasn't overwhelmed. And he's like, well, where's your evidence? I said, well, my evidence is that it's not overwhelmed. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. it. You know. No, but no, but what he means is, where's your evidence that it would have been overwhelmed yes. if they hadn't done. What they did, I mean, and and that you can never you can never answer because that's a, that's a counterfactual. But I mean, I suspect, I mean, I think the evidence is probably more on the prime minister's side than on Peter Hitchens yes. on that, on that. And I think that you know, I think I thought that was the strong point of the of the prime minister's presentation yesterday. Yes, I mean, I, it was great to see him back. He's clearly not uh, quite back to normal health though, because as many people noticed, he he did seem quite breathless at times. He didn't yes. look fantastically well. But I thought it was great to see him back. And it did seem to me that the uh, the inquisitors, if you like, if you want to call them that, were slightly more reverential than they have been.
Yes, I think I, th- I think that's true. I mean, I think politeness is, uh, is is always a virtue, anyway. So yes. I thought that was a good thing. But no, you're right. I mean, I thought the prime minister was short of breath. Uh, but I mean, you know, the experts say that is what you would expect mm. in in the recovery phase, and it will last for for some time. But I mean, I thought he he was plainly, you know, on top of the situation. Is is you know, he read out some some figures wrongly, but we can all do that. Uh, but he seemed, I thought, he seemed to present the government's case with some. Um, you know, attention to detail. He seemed to be across it all, uh, and I thought it was it was quite a good performance. Yes, that's the thing. And I mean, I saw that he almost let his guard drop, didn't he? When old uh, uh, Mr. Witty said that uh, he thought found he found a very good piece in the Guardian that he wanted yes. to mention, and uh, he sort of gave him a slightly side-eyed <laughs> look, you know, and then realised, well, I probably shouldn't slag the Guardian off at a national press briefing. But <laughs> but I mean, I was talking to somebody this morning, and I wonder what the efficacy of keeping it on every single day now is, because I think it would be far more effective if they did a briefing sort of every once a week, maybe, um, right. and then only had a press conference if there was something actually to say. Yes, I mean, I think we are going to... We're going to reach that point fairly soon, yeah. actually. Although what is interesting is you know, a lot of people do watch it. I mean, partly because you know, a lot of people have got nothing better to do. But, uh, you know, they do watch it, and, and the demand from the public to ask questions is quite high. I think that's quite a good thing as well, isn't it? Absolutely, because the public... I mean. You know, this this isn't a criticism of my colleagues in, in, in journalism, but the public do ask different sort of questions. Yeah. They're much more interested in just public information. Type well, do you know what I was surprised about? And maybe it's just the old uh, sort of editor in me, in me coming out, that I would have wanted to know from a human angle what it was like for Boris Johnson to be sitting in an ICU ward contemplating his own life. Yeah. Um, you know, what was that actually like? I can't believe nobody asked that. <laughs> You know, somebody, I'd have been I'd have been on the phone to them all going, "Would you just please ask this question?" Then somebody did ask, you know, has has your experience? Yeah, that's not the same changed though. your your view. Yeah, but that's no. a political question because True. that's that's after that piece by Rachel Sylvester about you know Boris is now a different man. He's yeah. going to lead the country in a different way because yeah. he's had this experience. That's not the same thing. I'm I'm interested in the kind of woman's own answer. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean. To be to be honest, I just don't think Boris Johnson is interested in answering those kind of questions. He yeah, well, that's why you have to personal, ask them. Which is which is interesting. Um, but that's why you have to ask them because sometimes the answer, even though it's not an answer, is is, is yeah. worth reporting. Yes, absolutely. I mean, but he wants to do it all on his own terms, which mm. is, you know, thanking the the nurses who looked after him and all the rest of it, and and, and that's fine. An opportunity to praise the NHS. He doesn't want to talk about it himself. Yeah, but that's all very well. But the the bottom line for me, I'm sorry, Boris Johnson, you are the prime minister. You are paid by the public purse, and you are going to have to answer a question if I put it to you. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or you're going to have to choose not to answer right. it in your, in your own way. Yes. I mean, you know, Harold Wilson used to used to just get away with saying no comment all the time. Yes. Back in the back in the old days, uh, I think I think politicians ought to do a bit more of that. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. So, what's your general view of the return of Boris Johnson, the way that it's all been going um, since we last spoke? Because there's definite hints, are there not, that there is now going to be a new plan, this phase two business that we're going to talk about? Yes, but I mean it's very. I mean it's what he said yesterday. It's going to be a menu of options. He's going to set out a, a range of things, and obviously, you know, you could start with with garden centres and letting people sunbathe, mm. which seemed to me pretty low risk uh, options. I mean, the the difficult things are things like public transport, and you know whether you could whether you can imagine people crowding onto buses yeah. again. Um, I mean, the wonderful thing about cycling around London is is, is, is the buses. They're all sort of tootling along really slowly and they've all got either one or no passengers yes. at all in them. Right. Um, I mean, I'm th- I believe that the, the tube trains at rush hour are still 
quite busy. I mean, not as, as busy as they once were, but, 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 you know, standing room only type busy. Yeah, that's interesting because you don't see people posting uh, pictures on... Uh, that's because they're all too busy going to work. They're not middle-class sort of media types. <laughs> you know, record every aspect of their life on Instagram. You know, they're actually Possibly. manual workers who've got more important things to do. <laughs> Absolutely. But, no, I mean, I think, I think Boris Johnson's facing an absolutely huge choice where he's going to get attacked, whatever he does. Mm. And I think... Uh, I think he knows that, and that's partly why he's still clinging to, to the scientists and the uh, and the medical experts, uh, because he needs their he needs their cover. Yeah. The interesting question is, you know, whether the opposition are going to attack him or when the opposition are going to attack him. Because I thought Keir Starmer was absolutely hopeless at uh, oh, terrible these questions. I mean, he just he, I mean, all this. If, if one more person tells me that he's a lawyer and he's very forensic in his questioning, I think I'm going to shoot someone. You know? <laughs> It's like just because he's a lawyer does not make him and one entertaining, two interesting, or three uh, any good at asking questions. Well, all productive. I mean, it yeah. wasn't it, it, it wasn't constructive criticism. I mean, he actually. I mean, this all this stuff about forensics and lawyer tra lawyer trained. He ended up asking in general terms when do you think it's going to roughly going to go to start easing the lockdown. I mean, that was a question that you know, sort of any member of the public could have asked yeah. easily. Uh, and and he spent you know minutes doing it. It really was painful to watch. But I think um, I think Boris Johnson has to be careful, obviously, because he knows that you know if he gets it wrong, the opposition are going to be um, uh, down his throat. Like but a... yeah, but also the sort of the the, the moving of, uh, sort of criticism has now got gone from the number of deaths in hospitals to the number of deaths in in sort of in perpetuity all over the place, including care homes. Yeah, and it's sort of you know so the. I don't know, the modus operandi has kind of moved. I'm not quite sure whether the... Um, I mean, I know that people would rather see transparency in government, but, I mean, I don't, I don't quite understand why the government have suddenly decided to up the numbers of people dying by yeah. including others that they never included before. Well, because they, they, cannot, they cannot afford to be criticised for for hiding anything, right. concealing information. So they have to... They but have nobody to else is doing it, though. I mean, that's the point. So we're being now compared to other countries who are not counting those those, those deaths, and so yeah, thereby Chris, making Britain look a lot worse compared to others. Yes, except I thought Chris Whitty was pretty clear on that yesterday, explaining why you can't compare these things. And I think the, the, the thing you've got to look for is is overall excess deaths, which... Um, you know, on on which measure we do we do reasonably well. But yeah. I mean, no, the point is that nobody knows why some countries get it worse than others because right. we just don't know enough about the, the the risk factors in all this. And it may be to do with you know having having big cities like London. It may be to do with our age yeah. uh, age profile, uh, what we do in care homes, all all the rest of it. We just n nobody knows any of that, and so it's all premature. But you know, the the prime minister still has to take decisions in the middle of middle of all this not knowing uh, and and hope that he gets it uh, broadly right. Yes, and they obviously can't afford to have got it wrong because, I mean, the, the alternative to what they did um, having uh, organised the lockdown, if they say hadn't done that, had it then resulted in what we saw in Italy where they were literally driving truckloads of dead bodies through the streets in the middle of the night, you yeah. know, that, that would be something that politically they couldn't have ever recovered from. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, th I think the Prime Minister is entitled to say that, uh, that, that he succeeded in his objective of, avoid of avoiding that. But mm. that doesn't help him with the next phase, which is, you know, if he, if he eases the lockdown too much, people will say, you know, that uh, people have died as a result. Yeah. But, and, and if he doesn't do it enough, people will say, well, the economy is completely destroyed. Flat mm. back. And, you know, we've got millions and millions of unemployed. 
uh, and it's all your fault. Yes, and I get the feeling that so far, um, the result of all of that so-called unemployment, it hasn't really hit yet because a lot exactly. of companies are kind of like British Airways are sort of playing fast and loose with their uh, plan to get rid of a load of people with, with very high-paying contracts. Ryanair, I suspect, the same. Um, you know, they're not actually laying people off because they have to because they're already furloughed. So they're already getting paid to, pay to, to, to have them do nothing. So what's the problem? Yeah, well, except that, you know, if you're never, if, if, uh, if airlines are never going to be back to, to, no, to so-called normal, yeah. then, uh, you know, they, they need to... But that's a worldwide problem. It's hardly the government's fault, is it? Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, it does mean that, there, that, that there are going to be jobs lost. And I think, you know, actual unemployment is going to be, is, is, is going to be huge. And uh, the damage is going to be... Uh, very, very difficult for the government to deal with. Yes, absolutely. And, and getting back out of it is going to be, you know, people are bound to say that the government hasn't done enough and, you know, we, you know we're back to austerity and all the rest of it. And uh, it seems like a very difficult situation, I would have thought, for, yeah. for, for the Prime Minister, which is why some people are suggesting that, you know, he should offer to bring, um, bring Keir Starmer into government and, uh, and make uh, Labour share the, uh, share the difficult oh, choice. Please, God, no. I mean, you know, this is a guy who didn't win an election, uh, therefore is not in government, therefore should never be in government. I mean, you well, know, anything I'd give him is the Robert Peston Award for brevity. <laughs> yeah, but Clement Attlee didn't win an election in 1935, and yet, you know, it was, it was a good idea to bring him in. Yeah, but Clement Attlee was, was a very intelligent guy who had something <laughs> to offer. You know, Keir Starmer, I, it seems to me, doesn't have anything to bring to the table, does he? Well, he brings, uh, he brings the Apart from a, a, a rather overzealous uh, wish to shut down newspapers. Uh, yes, well, uh, that's that's your opinion. I'm just explaining the sort of political calculation, yes. which is that it might be, might. Well, be... you might as well get Ed Davey in as well while you're at it. Well, absolutely, but I, when I he's finished uh, Ramadan, the but the opposition are not going to uh, fall for that one because they want to be, uh, they want to pretend to be supportive while uh, while reserving the right to yeah. uh, to criticise as soon as it does does start to appear to go wrong for the government. Well, exactly right. Well, it's fascinating stuff, John. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you very much, indeed. Hope your weekend is good. John Rental there, a chief political commentator for The Independent. Let's talk some more uh, about what is going to happen next week, what you're going to do this weekend, by the way. And also, what about this exclusive poll for Talk Radio? 84% of people surveyed say they would feel unsafe visiting a restaurant or pub if the lockdown is relaxed next week. Is that how you're going to feel? Really? This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, the news today is that Ryanair may slash 3,000 jobs due to the coronavirus crisis. We've already heard that British Airways is going to enter talks to possibly make as many as 12,000 people redundant. Um, lots and lots of airlines probably will not survive through this particular pandemic. Let's talk to David Els from Lonely Planet uh, to find out precisely what he thinks is going to happen. David, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. It can't be a very pleasant time to be uh, an airline at this point in time, but um, I'm finding it difficult to imagine when I'm going to get on a plane next. Well, two things there. Yes, um, who would be running an airline at this time? It, very, very difficult. I mean, it's difficult for everybody. You mentioned at the start there, people, whatever their jobs, you know, there's people struggling or have no job. Um, but if you work in the airline business, pilot, ground crew, air crew, whatever it may be, um, you're facing an uncertain future along with the rest of us. Yeah, quite. I mean, interestingly enough, the British Airways story I, I take as a sort of standalone story in a way because I know from people that I've spoken to inside the airline itself that they've got a problem in British Airways in as much as they've, they've had all those strikes that have been going on for a while because they've got some people earning some very high amounts of money doing the same jobs as people who are earning a lot less because of the different age of the contracts. Yeah, I mean, even before the whole coronavirus thing uh, 
became a story even was happening. I mean, we're going back a year or two and then possibly 10 years, depending when you start the story. BA has had some difficulties, some uh, conflicts, if you like, with different unions, both ground crew and air crew, particularly the pilots. There was all sorts of uh, discussions going on with the pilots wanting uh, more money, as you say, different contracts and so on. At one stage, that was all sort of put to one side because of the coronavirus crisis. Now, of course, it's come right back to the fore with BA talking about cutting some of their jobs. I mean, they have, roughly speaking, 40,000 employees, roughly a quarter of them, 10,000 are air crew, and they're talking about cutting 25% of of and possibly a, a similar percentage of ground staff. Yes, exactly right. And I saw that there was a statement that came out of the, the sort of head, uh, the, the, the firm that owns them, the overarching firm, IAG, saying that they may emerge from this British Airways as a much smaller operation. Does that mean that they would be less likely to have long-haul flights or would they concentrate more on long-haul and not so much on short-haul? I think what we're going to see, and you're quite right, because AIG owns British Airways and some other airlines, yeah. um, but what they're saying doesn't come as a massive surprise, at least over the next few years, because all the industry observers are saying, even even five, maybe even ten years, it's going to take us a long time to get back to normal, whatever normal is, and we, we know what normal was, yeah. and I think it's not a case of sort of cutting long haul and, and focusing on short haul or vice versa. There's just, <clears throat> excuse me, there's going to be fewer flights. Yeah. And I, I suppose just fewer flights in general means like... Because I remember years and years ago when I first um, used to go back and forth to New York and I worked there for a while and I would, there would be about sort of, you know, two flights an hour almost by British Airways, one from Gatwick, one from Heathrow, um, both to, to either Kennedy or to Newark. And then they started to cut back on that to the point where there was maybe five a day instead of one every hour, you know. So are you thinking more like sort of maybe two flights a day to New York or something like that? It may well be that. I mean, what I think what we're going to see, at least in the, the short to medium term, with fewer flights everywhere, anywhere, it's going to be a bit like going back to the 1970s when they're just... I mean, you mentioned time, I, I don't know exactly when you're talking about, but when everybody was flying everywhere and we all remember the times in the 90s when you could go to Barcelona for 99p, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And But before that, we have to remember there weren't so many flights and flying was something just for uh, luxury holidays, for the wealthy or for business people and so on. It may even be that we get back to that pre-boom time or flight patterns like that pre-boom time. Yes, and I suppose other airlines which are not quite as well um, upholstered, if you like, as British Airways, will struggle. I mean, you know, we've seen Ryanair today saying that they're going to slash 3,000 jobs, but we've also seen Ryanair in the past and Michael O'Leary saying that they will be one of the first airlines up and running again as soon as they can. Yeah, I mean, Ryanair are, are pretty good at um, getting media attention with statements, so it's always good to take the statements with a little bit of, of a pinch of salt. Yeah. But in this particular case, I think it is serious. Um, they have a they have a, a workforce similar kind of numbers to BA actually, and and some of some of the um, statistics they're, they're bigger than BA. That's amazing. They're isn't looking it? at five thousand pilots, and they're talking about at the moment at the moment cutting fifteen percent rather than twenty five percent on BA. But these percentages are almost like being plucked out of the air. I, I think the, the the people who are suffering, the people who have got jobs with those airlines, who don't know where they're going to be this time next week or next month. Those kind of percentages aren't really that helpful. What we do know is there are going to be some cuts in staff, there's going to be redundancies, and even if you keep your job, there are going to be pay cuts. And both BA and Ryanair and many other airlines have been clear about that. Yeah, because British Airways saying they may never return to Gatwick. I mean, is that, I presume that's bad news for Gatwick, isn't it? It may be bad news for Gatwick, but we've got to remember that the 
going back years and years before BA even existed. You remember when it was BEA and BOAC, the two oh, airlines yeah. that merged? One of them flew out of Gatwick, one of them flew out of Heathrow. Gatwick was, some people say, has always been regarded as sort of like the, the slightly down market airport for BA flights. They regard Heathrow as the premium airport. And there has been talk, and this is going back a few years, that gradually BA might reduce its flights from Gatwick almost to nothing and concentrate on the Heathrow hub. Mm. That's the talk. Now, that may have happened anyway, even without this coronavirus. What we may be seeing is that the crisis situation maybe has moved that a bit closer to reality. But I've got to say, we don't know if that's true. It's only industry talk, gossip, if you like, yeah. what the observers are proposing. Now, I don't know whether it's just anecdotal information, this, but I seem to be seeing more planes this week in the sky than I did last week. That's interesting. I've heard that anecdotally as well, and I've, I've been looking up at the sky. <laughs> After there being absolutely nothing, let's say, at the uh, mid uh, early April, um, now, whether this is um, flights, uh, and I, I looked into this, and there, there's some discussion on some of the industry websites. Right. There may be more sort of um, commercial flights going, but cargo flights where nothing was going yes. for a short time. Some of those planes up in the air are cargo flights. Some, there are maybe they're all maybe they're all being chartered by the Daily Mail and flying well, in all this PPE. For example, there's the rescue flights. I mean, it's a whole separate story which we haven't talked about. But the British holidaymakers that were stranded in Peru and yes. Pakistan and so on. Um, so there's flights going to rescue them. So and also we are seeing the very very beginning of a few commercial flights starting to fly yeah. again, but a very few. Put all that together, a few more planes in the air than there was in early April. And what do you make of the Virgin situation? Because obviously Richard Branson got himself into a lot of hot water when he was asking for a sort of government bailout, as it were, after having said that they shouldn't bail out British Airways some years ago. He's apparently been flying in some uh, sort of PPE equipment for the government as well, using his planes. It's very interesting that when one talks about Virgin uh, Airlines, one talks about Richard Branson. Yes. It's, it's not many companies where the person is so tightly linked to the company. We've got to remember there are many, many other organisations and corporations around the UK asking for government help. Yes. Um, it, this has reached reached sort of media attention because it's Richard Branson. Yeah, right. And, we all and also, he's only, a minority, he's only a minority shareholder anyway, isn't he? Well, absolutely. He, he earns, and it's more about earning the brand, the Virgin brand and the Virgin Airlines so much, but he's still the face of the airline, and that's why these kind of requests get more attention than very similar requests from other companies around the UK. Mm. So I don't think we should focus too much on the guy. We should focus on the query about a corporation. Should governments keep corporations afloat mm. in these difficult times? Well, that's going to be the big question, isn't it? Because, I mean, for the airline business, this is not a British problem as such. So, I mean, even though the, the, the airline may indeed be based in Britain, which, funnily enough, British Airways isn't anymore... Um, is it the job of the British government to bail them out because of an international crisis? I'm not sure it is. Is, the, is it the government's role to bail out any company, where, whether it's based overseas or not, that employs British workers? And I don't know the answer to that. I'm yeah. out of my league. I comment on travel, not on the political situation. And I don't know if there is a right or wrong answer. It depends which way you fall on the political argument. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the difficulty is that uh, the argument that is always made is that you're not bailing out the airline, you're bailing out the people that work for the airline. Exactly. And they're, they're thereby saving their jobs and their livelihoods and the economy, etc., etc. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about Wizz Air. Uh, they're apparently going to resume London flights to Spain tomorrow. I think it may even be uh, today. Really? Um, yeah, I think it's today, May the 1st, according to their website. Whether it means you can book flights today that fly out tomorrow, I'm not sure. Right. But uh, certainly, let's just say in the next day or two, um, yes, they are operate, operating commercial flights again. 
Now, this is very interesting because, as we've just mentioned, the other airlines are not operating commercial flights. They may be flying, but it would be maybe for diplomats, rescue crew, important services, and so on. Now, this is very interesting because they are operating flights. They have, uh, in normal times, they have flights all over Europe operating to Spain, but also some, some other destinations in Eastern Europe and also to Israel, interestingly. Um, now, they're operating those flights. I don't know from looking at their website what kind of uh, restrictions there are going to be on those uh, planes, because we've heard other talk from other airlines that if they do start flying, there's going to have to be an empty seat between every passenger or two empty seats yes. between every, and so on and so on. I mean, I don't think one empty seat's enough, is it? Well, exactly, and that's what people are saying, mm. that it should be three seats, right. and um, therefore you can only fly the plane 20% full and so on. This is the kind of discussion that's going on in the aviation industry now. But as far as Wizz Air is concerned, they are not clear from their website how many passengers they are going to take and how many spaces. All they're saying, and I've got the website right up in front of me, the following procedures will be enforced on all upcoming Wizz Air flights. Quick summary, wearing a face mask is compulsory, follow general guidelines mm. about social distancing, apply personal hygiene actions, be cautious and respectful. Make sure you're in good health and fit to fly. Yes. Well, I mean, Those that's another interesting one, isn't it? If you're going to, say, use the, uh, the lavatory on board a plane, um, safe distancing is pretty much impossible, isn't it? Well, well, you mean going in there with somebody? Well, no, I don't mean going in there with somebody. No, please, for heaven's <laughs> sake, it's a family show, David. No, I'm talking about um, if you're standing outside waiting to go in and there's a queue of one kind Absolutely. or another, and it's, it's going to be difficult to, to space everybody out two metres apart. Exactly. Passing people in the aisle, yeah. touching the toilet handle to open the door when the other person yes. comes out in all seriousness. I mean, are they going to, are they going to you know, um, sterilise the toilet each time after somebody's used it? They can't, Ooh, can they? It, it I, I just don't know. It doesn't say on the website. They're saying the planes themselves will be sanitised after every flight. Right. They're asking passengers to book online, book in their baggage online, yeah. pay with cards, not cash, and so on and so on. Uh, to be honest, this is a really good example of, uh, of a sort of trailblazing thing. The first flights to get back into action after everything pretty much stopping. I think they're probably going to be playing it by ear. And mm. us in the industry who are observers and commentators, we're going to be looking to see how they get on. And it's going to be very interesting this first week to see what bookings they get, right. what prices those fares are going to be. Because well, if that's another question. I was, four, uh, they're going to be double the fare. Well, that's the, uh, the other question I was going to ask you. But also, um, what happens when you get to Spain? I don't know what Spain's internal policies are, but certainly if you go to Australia right now, and I'm not even sure you can as a, as a non-Australian, but if you're an Australian citizen, you're immediately driven to a hotel, put into a room and told to stay there in quarantine for 14 days. Absolutely. And to be fair to the Wizz Air flight, and I'm sure this is repeated on any other airlines that will start flying again, it does say we strongly suggest you check the travel regulations of the and local embassies of your destination. Yeah. Regulations are changing rapidly. So absolutely, you might be able to buy a ticket, get on a plane and not get off at the other end. Yeah. So you really need to check. Absolutely right. And and as far as um, the prices are concerned, and, and the story that we saw in the Times yesterday, which was remarkable, saying that it might be in the future as long as four hours when you check into a, um, a, a journey that you're going to make at an airport, and you might get to the, to, to the gate to get on the plane, and they may give you some kind of health test or temperature test or something like that, which may rule you out from flying at that moment. So despite the fact that you're holding your boarding card in your hand or whatever, um, you, won't, you, won't, you will be stopped from flying. Absolutely. These are just proposals and suggestions at the moment, yeah. but that is one of the things we're seeing, more, more health checks. So we already have the cues for the passport and security and sometimes extra security checks. To be honest, a lot of us wait four hours in between getting to the airport and getting on the plane anyway. Mm. Um, the, the, the yeah, but if that's the, if that's the, if that's the extra 
check. If that's a sort of prescribed time, it might turn into six. You know exactly. I, mean? I think that's going to be more like it. But yeah. there are, there's a counter-proposal that instead of being health-tested at the airport, and these are only proposals, I've got to emphasise this, yeah. before you fly, you may have to get a test somewhere else and get a proof-to-fly certificate yes. that you present at the airport. So at least that might save you half an hour of queuing. Yeah. But it's the same principle. But we're seeing all sorts of stuff, more checks, longer waits, bigger spacing areas in the airport, you know, to keep this two metres apart. Yes. Bigger spacing on the planes, as we've just discussed. Empty seats. I mean, it's going to be another world. When we get back to anything like normal, those are the kind of things that the commentators are saying we have to expect. Well, imagine the queues at security as well. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and the simple, the simple um, procedure of being patted down by the security mm. staff, and so on and so on. I, I'm sure you know, these are all matters that the authorities are considering very carefully, but at the, at the moment, we just don't know the answers. Quite. David, thanks very much Can indeed. Sorry, go on. One last thing. It's very important for yes. people to realise that we're talking about flights, we're talking about stuff opening up, but before anybody goes anywhere, they really should check our government's um, travel advice page, okay. um, www.gov.uk. Mm. It's still advising British nationals against all but essential travel. Yes. And that is absolutely key. And is that for the foreseeable future, basically? Well, we don't know, but that's the advice now. Right. And also, if people want more general information, if they want to look at www.lonelyplanet.com, yeah. we've got up-to-date information there about travel advice and so on. OK, because there's a question here, actually, from Trevor, who's asking this. Uh, I don't know whether you can answer him. He says, I'm looking at booking a holiday to Cyprus next March to lock in the price in the next week. Um, could you ask any of your holiday experts whether this is advisable due to all the worries about airlines? I mean, my view of that would be... If you want to book it that far in advance, it's probably not a terrible idea. Um, and, and like all of these things, if, if they don't, uh, if the, the flight doesn't materialise, if it gets cancelled, then you get a refund. Yeah, generally speaking, that's exactly what you want. There's a little bit of Clint Eastwood going on here. It's do you feel lucky? The, 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 if it's not a huge amount of money and you are prepared, look, if it really, really comes to a terrible crunch, you might lose that fare. Might, might. But yeah, do that, book it, lock it in. Um, the chances are, if that flight doesn't fly in a year's time, like 10 months' time, the airline will give you a refund or the opportunity to rebook at a later date. One important thing, though, is the chances are, you're, if that flight is cancelled and you lose your money, the chances are you won't be covered by travel insurance if the cancellation is due to the coronavirus, because that is now what they call a known event, not an unknown event. Yes, But, absolutely. yeah, if you feel lucky and it's only a few hundred quid, it might be worth taking the punt. OK. Thank you very much indeed. David Elstead, travel writer from Lonely Planet, with some very good information and very interesting take on the airline business and where it all goes from here. The answer, basically, is nobody's very sure at all. The one thing that will be, sh will be sure, though, is that flights prices are going to go up, uh, there's going to be fewer flights, it's going to be more complicated to get on them, uh, and it's going to take a lot longer to get where you want to go. So, uh, on that basis, you may wish not to bother this <laughs> talk radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. Welcome back to the independent republic of Mike Graham right here on talk radio. Don't forget the Perrier Awards coming up in the next hour. Marta Balagon is here. Uh, she's been compiling them all week uh, out of all of the great pieces of radio that I've made over the course of the last five days. And, of course, I would be expecting to win an awful lot of them. Uh, Felix is in Slough. Let's have a word. Hello, Felix. Hello again, Mike. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks. Good. What can I do for you today? Okay, here's a slightly balmy idea. Well, there's, plenty of, like there's plenty of them out there. 
you know. <laughs> All right. Okay, my starting point is probably closer to the Hitchens uh, argument than you okay. are. All right. You know, 0.02% of under 45s die of COVID-19. Uh-huh. The, the younger people are generally okay. I think we can agree on that. Um, so, in the war, they evacuated children from London. Yeah. Why don't we give older people the option of being evacuated from London and the big metropolitan centres? Where to? Where to? Yeah. There's rather a lot of empty hotels in the country at the moment. Mm-hmm. There's rather a lot of empty student accommodation as well. So there are places for them to go. But what, about, then, the pe- what about the people that they may wish to see or their families? It's voluntary. They can, you know, people can uh, do what they're doing now, mm. more or less. Or, if not, they can be, basically, they've got the option. This is not compulsory. Okay. They've got the option to be evacuated. It will cost a lot of money, but we're... I think we're losing two billion a day, aren't we? Or one point something, you know. We've spent so much. I, I, I don't think that. I don't think it is a lot of money. Right. And then you well, open would, up. Do you, you open up? You, you let London go back to normal for the young people. You're the younger. Well, so London becomes a no-go zone if you're over fifty. It doesn't become a no-go zone, but you give people the option of getting out of there if they want. Okay. The older people. That would be fine. Because I just think things have got to change, you know. We, it can't go on. Or you have, or well, let's do it regionally, or let's do something, you know. No, listen, I, I'm not against uh, some radical reorganisation of the way we live. I don't think people would go for that, to be honest, only because, you know, moving to another part of the country does not guarantee that you won't get coronavirus, one. And two, I don't know whether your plan would be to isolate them in these hotels or whether they would just be able to wander about wherever the hotel is. Um, and how long would it be for? And, you know, there'd be an awful lot of questions about that. I don't think, I don't think it's necessary to move people. I think what you can do is lift the lockdown in certain parts of the country where it isn't bad, you know. For example, in the more rural parts of the country, people can probably be able more easily to move around and to go out um, and to go back to work and all of that sort of thing. Um, London, obviously, is the hot spot. So, um, but, I mean, London's already... No, I mean, I, I've, I mean, I know people say, well, the streets are quite empty. I've not really seen London on lockdown. As far as I'm concerned, when I see a lockdown, I see Spain, I see Italy, I see China, I see the way it was where nobody was going anywhere. And we've never had that. Yeah, we've mentioned that before. The, the problem is, it's the economy, isn't it? That's, you know, the fact people are wandering the streets is one thing. No, no, they're not, though. They're, the people are going started. to work. People have been going to work during this whole thing, Felix. I've worked, I've worked throughout, albeit from home. Right. I think a lot of people... I anyway. I think a lot of people have. And so this is why I always say, you know, this, this kind of doom and gloom about the economy, I think is being over-egged because the economy is still going. You know, we haven't run out of money yet. People are saying, oh, there's going to be loads of people made redundant. Um, well, maybe so. But, you know, that has been ha- that has been happening over time for the rest, you know, for, for my entire adult life. So, you know, there's no need to suggest that, that everything's going to turn to, to absolute, you know, piffle, because it isn't. And, the, and the, the government is ready and willing, it would seem to me, to start having this conversation. And I think if things start opening up more and more, which they're already doing, 
you know, it won't be as bad as everybody says. Yeah, we have to disagree on the economy, I'm afraid this would be... Well, you can if you like, but you don't know that you're right, do you? No, but, you know... You're just, another, you're just making a guess. Yeah, you're just as you, bad as Peter Hitchens. He's just guessing that it's all going to be horribly wrong. And you don't know that. I wish it... No, I'm hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. Yeah, well, that's always a good thing to do. But what I'm saying is, is you don't know that it's going to be a disaster. No, you don't. And, and, and one quick point on, on the whole lockdown thing. Yeah. You know, everyone who says, um, oh, you know, you know, going back to the Hitchens thing, the lockdown has been successful. You know... It is up to government to prove that lockdown has been successful. It's not up to those of us who thought it should have been loosened well, from well, the outset well, to prove yeah, that. But the point, point, well, there was two, two points to that, Felix. One, I've said to him many times, the proof is the fact that the, the NHS did not get overwhelmed, which is what the point of the, of the lockdown was supposed to be. It was never about stopping people from dying. So that is one piece of success. And secondly, um, you don't have to ask the question if the economy doesn't get ruined, do you? Yeah, I mean, I think we can. Let, let's say we've let's agree to say we've had the lockdown up to this point, and we have saved the NHS. And unlike Sweden, we had a healthcare system that probably wasn't capable of coping uh, unless we had lockdown. Well, I mean, I'm sick to death of these comparisons with Sweden. All of their hotels have gone bankrupt for a start, so you don't even know whether their economy has been crashed. But we'll talk about it some more because we're running late for the news, Felix. Thanks very much indeed. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the independent republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now it's that time of the day, just after 12.30, uh, when we talk about homeschooling. We've been doing this now since the lockdown began. We've covered a great many subjects, fascinating subjects, all the way from Stonehenge to uh, the origins of language, the origins of etymology. Uh, we've had Carol Vorderman talking about maths. We've been uh, given a virtual tour of the Tower of London today, I'm delighted to say, and we're going to talk to Dr Stephen Tufnell, Associate Professor of Modern United States History at the University of Oxford, because we're going to talk about the gold rush. And the gold rush, of course, happened many, many, many moons ago. 1848, I think it was, it started. It went on for a while. Uh, it was over in the Wild West. People basically travelled halfway around the world to make their fortune because somebody discovered gold in them, their hills. Let's talk to Dr Stephen and find out. Stephen, a very good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Nice to be here. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, I mean, people, I suppose, think about the gold rush as part of the kind of history of the Wild West and the, and the cowboys and the old movies that we used to watch when we were growing up. But, but there's an awful lot to this story, isn't there? No, that's right. I mean, um, the, the sort of popular image of the, the gold rush occurring as a, at a moment uh, of great kind of individual self-transformation for individual pioneers, sort of rugged individuals, bearded miners with pans, uh, is, 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 is obviously a little more, more complex uh, than that. And, and really the best way to think about the gold rush is that it's, a, it's one of the greatest coincidences um, in United States history. OK. Why was um, it a coincidence? Um, so what happens, uh, um, the famous story is on um, 24th of January 1848, um, James Marshall, uh, who's a lumberman uh, working at a place called Sutter's Mill um, in Northern California, uh, looks down and, and discovers and, and finds a a large flake of gold uh, in, the, in the, the bed of the California River. Right. And that's the find that, that will trigger the gold rush. What happens nine days later, uh, on the 2nd of February, several thousand miles um, south, 
in a suburb of uh, Mexico City, uh, the United States and Mexico sign a treaty that ends uh, the U.S.-Mexican War. So that's a conflict that's been raging um, for two years. Okay. Uh, the United States Army has conquered all the way down to Mexico City. Uh, and so within the space of two, 200 hours, really, the United States acquires California from the Mexican Republic. Uh, and California is then, then revealed almost immediately, unbeknownst to anyone, uh, when that war started, to be the most valuable uh, piece of real estate on the planet. Wow. Because um, it's one of the biggest states in the Union, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, and the, the sort of broader context, really, is that the United States in 1848 is just leaving a period of massive um, territorial expansion mm. and has added more than a million square miles um, to its uh, lands uh, in the space of just three years, really, since the annexation of Texas right. and the settlement of a boundary dispute to create the state of Oregon. Um, so that's an increase of sort of two-thirds, of a, an additional two-thirds of, of, of land uh, compared to what it already owns. Right. Um, and so the addition of California then kind of completes that process of westward expansion. Uh, the republic now extends from sea to sea. Um, but the, what, there's, a, there's a kind of belt of dense population on the east coast and the furthest west that the United States has sort of settled to, to that point is really Iowa and Missouri. So yeah. those states that we really now understand as the, the old Midwest. Right. And in the center of the, the country are large, powerful Indian empires uh, ruled by the Comanche, the Sioux, uh, and the Apache. So California is about, is about as distant and about as peripheral as you can be in the yeah. United States uh, at that point in time, which is really quite significant. For no, of course. And how, and how much of the population of California at that time had come from um, the Pacific, if you like? Or, or... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Points, points west, uh, for, for want of a better description, because obviously we know that um, some of the cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, as they grew up, had big Asian populations, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. So the, this point, it's really the gold rush that transforms that, that process. So the, on the eve of, of the rush, um, California's non-Indian population is about, about 14,000, uh, and that's made up mostly of um, the descendants of, of former Spanish-American uh, settlers, and some, some Mexican migrants from the, the northern states of Sonora. Um, and then there's a, a sort of large Indian population, large though declining Indian population too. 
Um, but it's the gold rush that really like transforms the state mm. uh, and triggers. It's as far as the start and pistol, really, of that, that great Pacific migration. So that 14,000 uh, population, 1848, soon becomes 300,000 by 1853. Wow. Um, Five years. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. really um, dramatic, dramatic growth. And they're coming from, from all places around the Pacific. So there are Australians, there are uh, Hawaiians, um, Chileans, Mexicans, um, and some Haitians, and then the, but a the really, really large um, migrant population from across the Pacific, and yeah. um, Chinese, uh, Chinese migrants, primarily from Shandong province, sort of agricultural uh, region in, uh, in the southern part of China, and they make up about a quarter uh, of, the form, of, of the total population of California at right. that point. Wow. So the quarter is made up by uh, Irish migrants, some coming from Ireland itself, Many are sort of um, serial migrants. They've left um, the left island um, because of the potato famine, and they're moving then from the eastern United States to, to points further west as part of that kind of long, right. long, long migration. So it's a really, um, really quite cosmopolitan population mm. um, by uh, by 1853. And you're right, and you see that transformation really in in, in the uh, in San Francisco itself, which. Uh, undergoes a really striking transformation. It's a, a city of just 500 inhabitants, about 123 houses and 12 shops in 1848. <laughs> right. uh, and then within that five-year period, uh, it's booming, and there's a population of around uh, 50,000, um, which um, is, is it's almost as if the lights were turned on overnight, and, and um, this huge influx of people comes uh, in to transform, transform the place. Right. Um, and really, San Francisco epitomizes some of the, the kind of key um, trends of the Gold Rush, too, and that's its ability to um, transform, both transform and destroy. Um, so what, one of the interesting things about, about the port is that uh, as part of that growth, um, uh, there, is, uh, it, there are real challenges to accommodate in that, that number of, of people. And what the citizens do is that they... There are 640 abandoned ships um, in the harbour, so where the crews have simply just uh, run off the boats to, to try and find gold. I was going to say, I mean, there must have been an awful lot of ships just, just sort of being built in order to, to ferry people across, right? Yeah, that's right. So there, there are um, huge, huge numbers um, be, being built just to get, get people there, um, and many of which are then simply abandoned in the harbour as the crew um, um, flees um, to find gold and find further fortunes. Many of those ships, too, are the remnants of um, the United States Pacific whaling fleet, uh, which is going into a sort of state of terminal decline at this point. And so they've put in at San Francisco, uh, and the, the crewmen have sought better opportunities elsewhere. And what happens to those ships is instead of them, them rotting, um, while, while space is at a premium in the city, is that the, the inhabitants simply um, take the rigs off them, uh, take the masts off them, and either pull them to the shore uh, or build um, jetties out to them, right. uh, and they build the city up around them. So the city streets, in a famous case, uh, um, for those of, um, listeners who can, can access kind of uh, Google image search right now, the, the Niantic Hotel, um, the city streets would literally be um, the, the hulk of a ship mm. uh, with houses built on top so as they're trying to utilize that right. lumber and that space uh, in new effective ways. And so the streets would sway. And sometimes it's called a Venice of Pine. Wow. Um, um, as, as the city tries to... I love... Adapt. I mean, it's a fascinating place, San Francisco. I've only been there once, and unfortunately it was after they had the earthquake in uh, 1989. Uh, immediately <laughs> after that, I was sent to cover it. And, you know, but I was down in Fisherman's Wharf, and I just thought, imagine what this must have been like in those days, because presumably when they did run off the ships, where did they go? Because presumably they had to find their own place to pan the gold. They couldn't just turn up where everybody else was. 
No, that's right. And um, it's, it's also because of the shortage of, of, of settlements and places to go, it's incredibly expensive to, um, to stay anywhere. I mean, board and lodging could be as much as $3 a day, and the average gold miner is earning about a dollar a day. Yeah. Um, so much of that would be um, living outside, um, um, possibly in, in kind of large mining camps. And so that, that image of the kind of individual pioneer miner that, that I mentioned at the beginning uh, is really um, uh, more popular than, than anything else. And most miners are grouped together in, in small companies, um, and that's partly because of the cost of mining, and it's partly because of the nature of the work. And so the, the, the popular image, too, of the kind of individual panning for gold um, is less commonplace than we, we, we might have first have, uh, thought about California. Um, because the, because the waterways um, and the, the flow of water in them is quite irregular. Much yeah. of the work is actually damming rivers uh, to create a regular flow and building sluices so that you can wash the gold out of the gravel rather than individuals panning for it. And the best way to do that is in companies because it's expensive to buy the lumber. Right. You can kind of pool resources together in that way. Um, so it tends to be um, quite a collaborative work rather than this sort of lonely um, um, individual yes. um, work work that we often sort of think of. Sure. And did anybody actually make their fortune by doing it, or was it all just a bit of a massive waste of time? <laughs> um, so there are some famous examples of people who did. And um, uh, one is a, a chap called James Brookmeyer, who's a Scottish migrant who, at the time of the rush, was living in Pennsylvania. Where he walked all the way um, to the gold fields, um, pushing a barrow with his equipment. Uh, and about four years later, he, re he returns to Pennsylvania with um, $15,000 worth of gold dust. Um, that's quite unusual. Um, mo most miners make enough um, to cover the cost of their living. Um, and uh, the majority probably make, make less than that. And that's why, you, in a, in a way, the, the, the 49ers, the Argonauts, as they're often called, they're really an itinerant labouring class, and they move from gold rush to gold rush trying to make make their fortune. Mm. Um, part of that is to do with the, the, the way that gold mining works. So there's sort of two, two, two types of um, gold ore. Um, and one, one is called um, um, one is, um, load deposits, and that's, that's gold that's encased in rock. Right. And the other is placer deposits. And that's, that's gold where the surrounding rock has been eroded, usually by the flow of rivers. Mm. Um, so that's the most easily accessible. And, and so that's, that's, what what you find, that's what you found in, in the river, basically. Yes, exactly, and that, right. that's what the rushes are most interested in kind of getting access to. Right. And you can extract that with quite simple technologies. Okay. Um, but in California, the, the alluvial phase or the placer phase uh, ends after about five years, and then what happens is that uh, the miners need to access those load deposits, which are very difficult to dislodge, and it requires a huge amount of money. Uh, so the old line that it, it takes a gold mine to work a gold mine really holds true. And the, in the, the placer miners are sort of pushed out and industrial mining takes over. And there's a, a period of what we call kind of hydraulic mining mm. um, instead. And that's, um, the principle is quite simple. Anyone who's sort of put their thumb over the end of a, a garden hose and, and, and used the pressure to um, spray water at a greater speed. Right. Uh, they're essentially doing that with, with huge, huge pipes that spray water at 100 miles an hour um, at the rock surface and they wash it into the river uh, into sluices which are coated in mercury and the gold amalgamates with that. Right. That takes huge amounts of capital and is not accessible to the majority um, uh, of gold miners. Um, so most, most people are making en enough to make a living but no more. Right. Um, and that's really one of the reasons why, why gold rushes are um, 
are quite unsettling for um, for the societies that are sending um, these miners. It's it's perceived as little more than a gamble, mm. um, and um, often these are people trying to escape wage labour. But they find that once they're there, they're only really making a wage themselves. So they're um, they, they never quite work out to be. Um, the, the, the sort of um, fortune... No. So they basically end up just getting stuck where they are because they have to work in order to stay where they are. They can't make enough money to do anything else. Listen, fascinating stuff, Dr Stephen Tufnell. Thank you so much, as ever, uh, with many of these subjects that we do uh, on homeschooling. You start off going, I thought I knew quite a bit about that, and then it turns out you didn't know anything about it at all. Uh, and he's a professor of modern United States history at the University of Oxford, so he's an absolute expert on the gold rush. Who knew it was so fascinating? Who knew they built houses out of boats in San Francisco? I didn't know that. Uh, we'll have more homeschooling for you next week, of course, because uh, at 12.30 every day, if there's any subjects you want us to cover, by all means, just tweet me, uh, tweet to, uh, at uh, Talk Radio, and we will find uh, a professor or an expert in almost anything to talk to about it. This is Talk Radio. Coming up, it's the Perrier Awards. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's Friday, the 1st of May. It is 12.48 and it is time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. <laughs> We've never actually started with a Perrier uh, for a Perriol, rather, for the uh, incompetence behind the glass. Did I hear an incompetence report? <laughs> It's been early. He's got early. Oh, well, thank you very much for Goodness your contribution. Gracious. Now, uh, welcome to the Perry Awards. Marta Malagon is here. Uh, Hi. Welcome to the uh, Perry Awards, Marta. And it's been no, another... I welcome you. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's been another fabulous week in the Independent week. Republic. Yeah. And, and I've said it once today, but I'll say it again. Thank you to all the new listeners and watchers that we've got Definitely. on YouTube, where we are out every single day live streaming. Um, and for the new listeners yes. and uh, watchers, let me explain what's happening now. Yes. This is uh, the bit where uh, I come in and we look over the last week of the so-called independent, so independent, so independent Republic of my grandma's yes. already and choose our favourite moments. Mm. Or, or, you know, or, or we just laugh at uh, Mike Graham's mistakes. Which, which is... have not been many this week, I have to say. Well, we'll see about that. We will. Uh, as it's tradition, the first period goes to you, you, and it's the correction of the week. Uh, speaking of cobblers, quite a few of you have been in touch to say that I've gone mad. Haven't is not in Sussex. It is, of course, in Hampshire. Uh, I'm very sorry. Uh, that is indeed correct. It's right near Portsmouth. I don't know what I was thinking. You should be sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I said it was in Sussex at some point. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I know Sussex quite well. You do, yeah. But uh, Your dog haven't. lives in Sussex, My dog does it? live there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's not been to Haven't. No. Haven't been to Haven't. Haven't. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sketch writer for the Times, Quentin Lutz, joined us earlier in the week. And among other things, mm. he talked about your very good friend, Stephen Doughty. And when I say very good friend, uh, I don't mean it at all because he brought you on Twitter. <laughs> That's another story. He's not the only one. <laughs> no. No, I've heard, yeah. Anyway, uh, Quentin uh, won a pair for what I've called the cold sausage moment of the week. And he's got some odd lighting going on. He goes up quite close to the camera. <laughs> but one side of his face is lit slightly sort of ghostly way. Right. And it looks just like somebody opening their fridge door late at <laughs> night to have, a, to, to have a cold sausage. <laughs> Who has a cold sausage in the middle of the night? Well, do you know, I've been known to do that. Really? Yeah, yeah. Not so much in London, but certainly when I'm at the weekends at times, if there's been a barbecue, ah. for example, and not everything gets eaten... It gets okay. put in the fridge. So, yes, yeah, so a leftover sausage. And a leftover basically. barbecued sausage at about oh, one enough. in the morning. 
can Fair sometimes enough. be very, very nice indeed. Well, interesting. Well, yeah. that's good to know. Listen, yes. you, you learn something every day, exactly don't right. you? Uh, caller Ian in Newport wins a perrier for three things. Uh, the best start to a call, for scaring the hell out of me behind the glass, and for the impression of the week. Hi, Mike. This is Megan here. <laughs> I, I'm so proud of Harry. He's just got a new job. Has he? He's, he's fronting Thomas the Tank Engine and reading the books. Are you so proud of him? <laughs> I'm loving the fact that people are actually now ringing in to do impressions of Meghan Markle. I'm loving that as well, mm. and I encourage it. However, dear listener, please tell me if you're going to do this. Because Ian came on the radio and I was like, oh, my God, no, someone's lied to me. Right, it's somebody else. And, you know, we're going to be in trouble or they're going to swear or they're going to libel right. someone. And, <laughs> and, you know, my heart starts racing and I don't think that's very good for my I health. Did, I did see so, your face uh, make quite a funny expression because you yes, clearly thought it was somebody else. I just thought someone had lied to us right. to, to get on air. So if you're going to do it, that's fine. It's encouraged. You get on. You'll be able to make your impression. But please, please, please. Tell me first, okay? <laughs> uh, and as always, Mike also wins the impression of the week for his Harry and Meghan. Oh, oh, Meghan, Meghan, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy. Uh, I'm not happy. I used to be Commodore-in-chief of small ships and uh, diving. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot of friends uh, in the army. Uh, and, and none of them are talking to me anymore. Uh, they think I've become a bit of an idiot. Meghan, Meghan. What should I do? Harry. <laughs> Harry. You don't need them. You don't need them. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm the woman in your life. I love you. You haven't asked me how I am today. <laughs> Bless. Bless. And there's going to be a lot of arguing in the old Meghan and Harry household in Chateau Marmont, I think, at the moment, because yeah, they've just uh, had a good kicking from the mail on Sunday, I'm afraid. Oh dear. Judges called her case irrelevant. Oh dear. That's a bit that's a bit harsh. I know. I don't know. Mm. We'll see. Uh Mike, you also win the wrong namer of the week. Also, uh, we'll be talking to Jeremy Godfrey. Sorry, who? Also, uh, we'll be talking to Jeremy Godfrey. Jeremy. Jeremy. Yeah, it sounds like Jeremy a bit, doesn't it? Listen, you get in there. Because <laughs> last week was Jerry. <laughs> this time it's Jeremy. <laughs> so next week we'll be Gemma. So, yeah. hey. Well, I, <laughs> well done. I'm sorry, Gemma. There must be some kind of mental block I've got. I know. And, and listen, we, we love Gemma. So, uh, we you do. Know, next Tuesday, she'll be back on. And, and dear listener, tune in to find out how my grandma will call her next. Uh, what am I going to call her? <laughs> you, me. Sorry, Gemma. That's okay. So, uh, the next one, I don't know who uh, I don't know who to give this to. I could give this pair of award to myself for mm. coming into the studio during an interview. I could give it to the facilities team at News UK for yes. the short shortage of lubricant. Yes. Or, I've, but you know, I've decided to give it the universe because why not for providing the noise of the week? Uh, it won't be able to hold the line. So all kinds of formal, informal. Oh. There was an awful lot of kind of voluntary closure. <laughs> You sure that wasn't the 17th century being opened where Peter Hitchens spends most of his time? No, it was that door over there. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, it was that Can one. Can we not blame engineering for that? No, it's not their fault. Well, I thought of that, yeah. right? I and think we should just blame them anyway. OK, James Larvin, yeah, it's, it's your like, fault, Larvin's mate. Larvin's fault, yeah. Get, yeah. get up here with your three-in-one yes. oil. <laughs> just For heaven's sake. Get it. Yeah. I, I didn't report it then. I don't think it's made any noises, but, you know. Well, it's very odd, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. surely if you have a squeaky door, it should squeak every time you open it. Yeah. But it doesn't. 
Mark, I'm going to skip the next one, if that's all right. So we're going to go straight to uh, today's uh, Sauvignon Blanc's day. Yeah, yes. Uh, which is a very important day in this so-called That reminds me, I'm going to go and buy some more Sauvignon Blanc. Well, you know, I've got the bottle. I've got a bottle in the fridge, the one that... The one we had, yes. Yesterday. Mm. So, you, you can know, drink it later. I, I might do. Excellent. Um, anyways, I was saying it's a very important day in this so-called Independent Republic of Migram. <laughs> and in fact, it's so important that we decided to start celebrations um, a day early. Yes. We did a wine tasting at the end of yesterday's show. And Mike was obviously happy because he had wine. But I think it's fair to say that he was also happy about something else. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Ian Collins coming up at one o'clock. Dan Wooten coming up at four, of course. I've got some um, some cups here. <laughs> they used to be glasses, but of course, now that we're in the middle of a lockdown, we can't get glasses in the building anymore. But I've got three glasses here because, uh, well, three cups, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're all we're all going a bit mad, aren't we? Really? I know. I, think it's, the, I know. Uh, it's week six, isn't it? It's it's week six. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. So that means it's going to be week seven next Monday. <sighs> Goodness gracious me! We're doing some beer tasting next week. Oh, are we? Yes. Oh, good. I can't say much more. All right. Because it's not uh, 100% confirmed. But yeah, we're, we're having Any some beer. What's the occasion? I think the occasion is um, someone's launched a beer, uh, and the proceeds go to the NHS. Oh, good. So always a good excuse. Drink guys. for the carers. That's a good one. <laughs> First we clapped, then we drank. <laughs> um, and finally, because I know I'm running out of time, yeah. a couple of fair rewards uh, for Mail on Sunday columnist Peter yes. Hitchens. He's become a regular on Monday mornings, yes. and this week he gets the first award for stating the obvious fact of the week. Um, not much above 2,000. Yes. It's at 2,194, according to World Armistice. But it's rising. And, and, well, of course it's rising. The death figure always rises. People don't, um, don't come back to life. <laughs> Fair. He's right. He's right on this one. I mean, I can't argue with that one. No. You know, he's back on Monday, not. by the way, 11 o'clock. He's back on Monday. Yeah. Uh, but as I said, that's not all. Okay. Although you both have got better at the, this uh, not talking about each other business, mm. uh, there's still a long way to go. <laughs> and Peter Hitchens wins today's last pair for denying the request of the week. But also, no, but also let me, let me, we haven't, well, I need to interrupt you just because we haven't got a lot of time, Peter. 2,194. And, I, need, I just and, need to interrupt and, and, and you quickly. It may be that there is about to be a sort of hack or two of death in Sweden, which will, <laughs> yeah. which will raise all these two figures, but at the moment, I see no sign of it. Let me just and make one is, last point. Real no. test. Instead of going on and on, as so many people do, about how Sweden's deaths are rising and so on and so forth, what they should do is work out what it is... I've got a better question than that. people said would have happened in Sweden. I've got a better question. What they did. I've got a better question than that, because we've only got about a minute left, and oh, I appreciate it's your time. Like this when it gets tough. <laughs> And then he complains that I'm not giving enough time. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. I know. That was about a minute long. I take my hat off to him. I know. Me too. But listen, uh, keep 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 doing this. Looking forward I'll keep to trying. Monday. Could I just, you know? Yeah. Can me? I just? No. I, I need to interrupt. May I just interrupt? Yes. Having none of it. No. I love it. But it has settled into a kind of reasonable rhythm. I think. Yes. You know, the first one was quite difficult. Second one, yes. much too easy. Now we're kind of somewhere no, I, in the middle. I think I think it's fine, but still a little bit of work to do on that front. Yes. But uh, it's good. It's well, going another well. fantastic series of Perriers. I thank you very much indeed, thank Martha. You very and much. Thank you for all your hard work this week. And Mark, even though he, he even tried to mess up the yeah. Perriers for you. I think deliberately. Sabotage. Sabotage, exactly right. <laughs> uh, luckily, we all play a part of a team here. And we don't uh, lay individual blame, apart from, of course, uh, James Larvin from the engineering oh, department, yeah. who always gets the blame for everything. Uh, please come and fix the door. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. No, we won't. That's rubbish. <laughs> That's complete rubbish. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan will be here at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm on his show, though, which is what's confused me. And, uh, and then on Monday, I'll be back at 10, which will be week seven of this bloody lockdown. Ian Collins is next. <laughs>
<laughs> the Perrier Awards on Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.